good. Tonight is your uh, first time to Matthias Slot. There's something that I need to tell you about before we begin, and that is that Wednesday nights is only about half of what we do, because on Sundays we have something called Lot Families. Now what Lot Families are, they are small groups that meet in homes all throughout the community at 11 a.m. And on the table when you walk in, there's a whole bunch of different maps to different small groups that are going on in the community. What we do at small groups is we gather together and we have lunch, we pray, we share struggles that are going on in our life, and we dive into the teaching. And guys, I I want you to know that sometimes unexpected things can happen at Lot Families. I mean, do you guys that are in Lot Families agree with this? So Sunday, we're at my Lot Family, and my Lot Family is we're, we're diving into the Word and we're praying because we're the most spiritual Lot Family, obviously. That's right. You hear me, brother. And, and as we are engulfed in our study we realize that my youngest daughter, Julia, has not been with us for like 20 minutes. And so we start looking around, and I turn, and I say, Honey, where is Julia? And Benjamin like yells from the back, Daddy, Julia's in the desitin! So Julia walks out, and this is what she looked like in the middle of a lot family. And you know, the sad thing is, Like, you can tell that she's crying in the picture. She wasn't crying. It's not in her eyes. The reason that she's crying is because everybody in my lot family gathered around her like the paparazzi and started out, like, busting out their camera phones, and they're all taking pictures of her. So she gets all overwhelmed and starts crying. But all that to say, guys, if you are not a part of a lot family, please, please, please check out what we're doing on Sundays because you are absolutely missing out on something amazing that's happening in our church. Why don't we, uh, let's just pray as we get started. If, we, if you don't have a Bible, there were some out in the back. Uh, if, there's, if you still don't have one, feel free to head out there and grab one of those here as we begin. Father, we love you, God. We thank you so much for the opportunity to dive into a new piece of Luke tonight as we look at Jesus and his experiences with the disciples and how he is leading them, Father would teach us tonight through your word. God, I pray that you would challenge us. I pray that you would convict us, God. And most of all, I pray that you would teach us how to turn our faces resolutely towards you and worship you in all things. We love you, God. In your awesome name we pray. Amen. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 9, verse 51 is where we're going to start. Let me read here for us as we begin. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Now this word approached is, has a much deeper meaning than just that he is approaching something. But the Greek form of the word, sumplarao, literally means fulfillment. And so as Jesus is going, there is something that is coming closer and closer to fulfillment. And what that thing is, is mentioned right there in that same verse. Look down with me again in verse 51. It is Him to be taken up to heaven. Now, we've already talked about this if you've been with us in Luke chapter 9, 
verses 30 and 31. Turn there with me, Luke chapter 9, verses 30 and 31. What is this whole taken up thing all about? There's two men, Moses and Elijah, and they appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem. So at the transfiguration, Moses and Elijah are there and they're talking about this departure of Jesus. And now it's brought back up. What is this departure all about? Well, this departure is what we call the ascension. And if you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24 with me, verses 50 to 53, we can find out what the ascension is all about. Luke chapter 24, verses 50 to 53. When he had led them out of the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and he was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple praising God. So after Jesus' death and after his resurrection, he is there with the disciples and he he has his hands lifted up and he is blessing them. And as he is blessing them, he is raised up into heaven. Now that may not mean a whole lot to you, but literally what the ascension is, is the culmination of Jesus' birth, his life, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection. And as the disciples are viewing Jesus like floating up into the sky, it says that they worshipped him. And so here, as we're, as we're looking at Jesus going up into heaven, the time is approaching for him to be murdered, to him to be resurrected, and for him to ascend in to heaven. Now Jesus has been letting the disciples know about these coming events as we've been going on because there's certain things that have to happen in order for this ascension to take place. First, if you look back with me in Luke chapter 9, verse 44, there's something that will have to happen first that Jesus has talked about. Luke chapter 9, verse 44. He says, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. So first, as Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem, he is going to arrive there and he is going to be betrayed into the hands of the men that are going to crucify him. Then if you look in Luke chapter 9, verse 22, and he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected, excuse me, by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And so after Jesus is betrayed and he's turned over into the hands of men, he is going to be rejected by the teachers of the law, by the priest. And then what? Then he's going to be beaten. And then, friends, He is going to be crucified. Now, in order for that betrayal to take place, in order for those beatings to take place, in order for that death on the cross to take place, Jesus must go towards Jerusalem. 
Now, the most important thing to see about this, and we miss this in the NIV, but the ESV picks it up when it says that Jesus resolutely sets his face towards Jerusalem. And I have this image in my mind of Jesus' eyes just blazing here as we start in verse 51. Jesus is on a mission to get to Jerusalem. Why? So that he can be betrayed. Why? So that he can be beaten and he can be crucified. So that he can be raised from the dead. Now, who in the right mind would want to go to a place where they know that they are going to be beaten? Who in the right mind would want to go to a place where they know that they're going to get crucified? Friends, only Jesus. And why does he do it? Because Jesus is in control of the crucifixion. That's right. Don't miss that. Jesus here is the one that actually initiates Himself being put on the cross. Why? Because that is the passion of Jesus Christ. Amen? Why is it His passion? Because that is the plan that God has given Him here on earth to glorify the Father through a death on the cross and a resurrection so that sinners like you and I can be redeemed and we can be brought back into community with the Father. That is the Gospel. So Jesus now sets His face resolutely towards that end. Now check out what happens as he does it. Going back to uh, chapter 9, verse 52. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. Now again, see there in this place, the ESV picks it up. He is setting his face towards Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and he rebuked them, and they went in to another village. Now, there's two important reasons here why this whole thing takes place. Jesus has sent messengers on ahead to the village. It's a Samaritan village, and what happens These messengers are rejected. Now, the messengers' whole purpose is that they are going to go ahead of Jesus and the disciples, and they are going to prepare some type of overnight lodging. But when they get there, and when they're speaking with the Samaritans, the Samaritans will not allow Jesus to come and stay in the Samaritan village. Now, the two big reasons for this are, first, that there is great division between Jews and Samaritans. They do not get along. If you have your words, again, turn to John chapter 4, verse 9, and this will become so evident for us. John chapter 4, verse 9. These scriptures will also be up on the screens as well. Again, great division between the Jews, and against the Samaritans. Jesus here is speaking to a Samaritan woman at the well, right, Jacob's well, and in this dialogue, she makes a statement about the relationship that Samaritans have with Jews. The, the Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? 
And then what does it say? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. You see, back in 1 Kings, what, ha- what happens is that there is a group of Israelites that separate and they go and they establish this, the city of Samaria. And once they go, they are defeated by the Assyrian Empire and they begin to intermarry with people that are outside of the Israel nation. And once they begin to intermarry with people, all of a sudden, this group of people begin to worship pagan gods. And so the Israelites, the Jews, then begin to reject this group of Samaritan people because they say, you have sold us out. You're just a bunch of half-breed punks that don't worship the true God. And so no longer do we want to have anything to do with you. And so there's great division between these two people. But not only that, but Jews truly believe that the place of worship where the Samaritans have to worship is not in Samaria. Again, look at chapter, chapter 4 in John, verse 20. This is what the woman at the well tells Jesus. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where, you, where we must worship is in where? It's in Jerusalem. And now, it might come to, to help you to understand that because Jesus' face is set towards Jerusalem, and this is where Jesus and the disciples want to go, that they know in Samaria that this group is going to Jerusalem. And because you Jews say that we have to go there and we have to worship, that we don't even want you to go. So no, we're not going to help you stay the night here. We hate people in Jerusalem. We hate Jews. And so they reject them. Now James and John come up with a brilliant idea. They come back to Jesus and they say, well, bro, let's just call down some fire on their heads, you know? I mean, let's just burn them up. Heads is is added for emphasis, obviously. But let's just bring down some fire on them. Now, this may sound crazy, but they are actually quoting something that happens biblically. Biblically, I'm sorry. 2 Kings um, chapter 1, verses 9 to 12. We won't go there, but what we see happening is there's this guy named Elijah and he calls down fire from heaven on a group of people that are not worshiping the true God. And so who the disciples just recently had an interaction with, with Moses, right? It was Elijah and Moses. And so the disciples walk away from this experience and here they're thinking, hey, let's just follow Elijah's plan and let's just call down some fire. And what does Jesus do? He rebukes them. He tells them, there's no way. You're not going to call down fire on these people's heads because they have rejected you. Now, this is very, very important and we're going to spend some time here for just a minute because there's something that we all need to see. Last week, Mark brought a phenomenal message in my my face actually still hurts from that message. But he brought a message, and it was all about, in two points, Jesus teaching the disciples how to love certain people, right? And so the disciples are having this argument, okay? And you're going to have to forgive my drawings here. But here's the disciples. 
alright? And they're having this discussion on who in that group is the greatest. And Jesus perceives their argument and He comes and He says, you know what? The least of you is actually the greatest. And He brings a child up before them and He uses that child as an example to teach them because a child was the very least in Jewish culture. And so He's telling them, you know what? If you want to be the greatest in this circle, you have to be the least. And so what is Jesus doing here is He is teaching us how to love each other. In this community, in Matthias Lot, we are going to have to learn how to love one another and know that none of us can be seeking to be the greatest because the least will be the greatest. Then in the next story, the disciples come back and they say, you know what? We saw this guy that was casting out demons in your name. And we told him to stop because he wasn't one of us. But who was he casting out the, the demons in whose name? It was Jesus' name. And so Jesus, again, teaches them that, you know what? If there's these other groups of people, and there's these other groups of disciples, and they are casting out demons in my name, then they are not against you, but actually they are for you. So Jesus teaches the disciples that you must first love each other and then you must love other believers that exist within different communities. Okay? So we, as a body, not only love each other that's in this body, but we learn that first assembly that is down the street, those are our brothers and sisters in Christ. So why in the world would we need to talk smack about them when they are going towards the same mission to glorify God and to bring about the Gospel to people? That's our brothers. That's our sisters. It's the same thing with the Church of Christ down the street. Church of St. Charles up in Powell Terrace. We are working together. How dare we ever have a negative thing to say about another church, even if they're outside of our denomination? Unless, of course... It's this church. This is two rivers. <laughs> so, <clears throat> we're going to send that audio over to him. So Jesus now teaches us, you need to love each other. You need to love other communities of believers. Here's the third one, and it's the kicker. Oh man, this is good. Jesus rebukes them because they want to call down fire on the heads of some people that reject them. And now Jesus is saying, you guys need to learn how to love people that reject you. So what does that mean? We just covered the whole gamut. You love each other in Matthias. You love First Assembly. You love the Church of Christ. You love the Church of St. Charles. Not two rivers. And then, you love everyone else. You love everyone, because I created all of them. Now, here's the deal. It is way easier for us, as Christians, to do this and to do this. Do you agree with me? I mean, maybe I'm just making a confession, but I find it much easier to love those two groups of people. Why? 
Because where love can be reciprocated to me, it's much easier to love. If I know that like there's something inside of you that's going to make you love me, namely your love for God, it's so much more easy for me to love you. It is hard to love when love will not be reciprocated. It's hard. And in order for you guys to, to, to kind of help you understand this, I want to do something that I hope will bring us some type of a visual image on what I'm saying. Anybody hungry? So imagine, if you will, one of these scrumptious Cheerios representing a penny. Imagine it representing a penny. Now, Matthias Lot, in the last three years, has loved some people in our community that exist outside of this circle and that exist outside of other church circles. There's been some things that we have done. We have done Second Saturdays, which is a time where we go into the community and we love on widows. And we love on elderly people that maybe can't do work for themselves. And you know what? We love on divorced mothers who don't have a husband that's there to maybe help them to take care of their house. And we found people in our community that are handicapped. And so we'll go in and we'll like fix their door or we'll cut their grass. We'll do like really cool stuff for people that are hurting in our community. And not only have we done Second Saturdays, but a while back Mark had a brilliant idea that we should do a movie night, a free movie night for the community. And so we spent a little bit of jack and we figured out a way to get a huge projector into the St. Charles High School and we had a movie night. And to our amazement, we had like 500 people that showed up. And so without any type of agenda or any type of expectation, we had a whole bunch of people come, watch the Chronicles of Narnia and experience a free movie night. Not only have we done that, but we have done a sweet pool party. After that, we thought, I mean, shoot, what the heck? Let's keep this thing going. We sent out invitations to the community and we had this pool party. And to our amazement, we had like a thousand people show up in 2006. It was insane. Now, imagine, if you will, that each one of these Cheerios represents a penny. Now, to, to get some type of quantitative idea on how we have loved the community, we'll just talk in terms of money. Can you believe that we have actually spent this many pennies on loving people in our community? Can you believe that? Here's the deal. If you can believe that, you shouldn't because I'm lying to you. <laughs> this does not represent a penny. This represents a dollar. <laughs> That's right. This represents a dollar. In the last three years of our church's 
very, very young existence, we have spent over $48,000 on loving the community of downtown St. Charles. Now, I hope somewhere inside of you that gets you a little bit excited that you can be a part of a church that's only three years old that is that committed to the community that we would spend that type of money on loving people. But here's the make it or break it question. How many people right now are in this room because you were loved on at a community event? That's why you're here. Everybody look around. Go ahead. Feel free. Look around. How many thank you cards do you think that we have received from Second Saturdays or community events in the thousands of people that we have loved on? One. How many phone calls do you think that we've received of people just calling us and saying, hey, thanks for for putting on the, the free movie night. Thanks for coming to my house and replacing my hot water here. How many times do you think people have called us on the office phone and said thanks? Everybody see? Here's the deal. There are some people that are up in this room tonight and you are at the point where you are ready to call down fire from heaven on our community because you don't think that they are responding the way that they should because you think that we've been rejected. Now maybe you don't call down fire from heaven by literally saying, I want to call down fire from heaven. If you do, you're messed up. But you know what? Maybe what you do is that in your mind you say, all right, that's fine. I mean, I'll show up to the community love event, but at the pool party, I'm just going to sit around the picnic table and I'm going to stay with this group of people because I don't like to talk to people that don't reciprocate love back to me. Or maybe for you, it's, you know what? I've got so many other things to do on a second Saturday that I'm just going to stay in my bed because I don't like going to those things because I don't feel like the people even appreciate it. Or maybe for you, it's, you know what? I would rather have some people over from Two Rivers or from another church, some of my other Christian buddies, for dinner tonight because my neighbor doesn't respect me like he should. You do this, don't you? I do this. I'm talking to myself. When are we as a community going to learn that when we resolutely set our faces to the cross of Jesus Christ, that loving people is not about reciprocation? It's not. We have been called here as a church to be obedient to a call, and that is to love people without an agenda. And if you have an agenda in going to an event, in loving people, then you have an expectation that somehow it's about you and it's not about them. Friends, we have to get this. I think that we've already gotten many of the others. As a church, we have been called to love people. Let's keep going. 57. Here in these next few verses, Jesus is going to teach us now 
what does it mean to truly be a disciple? And it is going to be absolutely beautiful. Verse 57. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. So Jesus is walking here along the road and He has a man that is walking with Him that says that He wants to follow Jesus. Now we don't know all the details of this man's life, but what we do know is that Luke has strategically placed this moment of Scripture here for a very amazing purpose. Think in your minds now. Alright, just do this with me. What has just happened to Jesus? The Son of God has been refused a place to stay. And so now this man wants to follow Jesus. And Jesus says, if you want to follow Me, you are going to have to understand that there will be times in your life where following Me even cost your home. Look at the Samaritans. They wouldn't even let Me come and stay the night. If you want to follow Me, you are going to have to give up all of the things that you might consider comfortable. Now that doesn't mean that you won't experience those things from time to time, but you have to understand that they aren't the highest priority of your life anymore. I am. Here's a little story for you real quick. There's a guy that is connected to our church. He lives in a place that's a few hours away and he believes that God has called him to plant a church here in St. Charles County. He believes this so much that he has taken every possession that he has in his house other than things like his clothes and he has been selling all of them for the last two months because he believes that God has called him here to plant a church. Right now, they're struggling to sell their house, but they knew that they were supposed to get up here, so they sold everything that they have, and they have moved in with their mother-in-law. Now, I mean, that's got to be sacrifice enough right there. Some of you guys know what I'm saying. He believes with all of his heart that he is supposed to do this, and so he sacrificed everything that he has Now what I'm saying right now is not that you need to go home and sell everything that you have, but you have to realize that if you truly want to be a disciple, that it means that you are going to have to sometimes set aside the things that you consider comfortable to keep your face resolutely set towards Jesus Christ. That's what it means. Going on in verse 59, He said to another man, Follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Check this out. Check what Jesus says after this guy says this. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and you proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, if we were going to do like the hard sayings of Jesus, topical like series, this would fit right in. So this guy tells Jesus, look, Like, I want to follow you, but first I need to go and I need to bury my father. And what does Jesus say? No. Preaching the kingdom of God 
takes a higher priority of you going and burying your father. Now, almost all commentaries and and guys that are theologians will say that this guy's father is probably not already dead. In fact, Jewish law would say that if his father was on his deathbed or if his father was already dead, then he would have to immediately go and he would have to be with his father and he would have to bury his father. The greater probability is that this guy has a father that is aged in years and he wants to go and he wants to live with him until his father dies. Why? Maybe because he wants to be able to live those last two years with his father, just focusing on that relationship. Maybe he wants to go and be there when his father dies because if he's not, he won't receive his inheritance. Whatever the case may be, This guy says, you know what, Jesus, I want to follow you, but first I need to go and I need to take care of some business. And Jesus' response to him is, let the dead bury the dead. And what Jesus is literally saying there is this, let the spiritually dead, let the people that don't follow me, bury the physically dead, but you preach the kingdom of God. Let's check out this very last one. Verse 61. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit in the kingdom of God. Another very hard saying from Jesus. Now this saying has some history, and I want you to turn back with me in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 19 to 21. 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 19 to 21. And check this out. There's another, um, this is kind of an allusion here, back to 1 Kings, where we see Elijah and Elisha and this same thing happening. Check this out. Verse 19, So Elijah went up from there and he found Elisha, son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the twelfth pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and he ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and my mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come back to you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? So Elijah left him, Elisha left him, and he went back. He took his yoke and his oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat, and he gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his attendant. And so what happens here in a very, very similar story is one prophet calling another man to follow him. And Elisha comes and he says, Elijah, I want to follow you, but first, I just, I want to go back and I want to say goodbye to my mother and my father. And Elijah says, go back. What have I done to you? Go back. Now, the difference is that when Jesus talks to this man, he doesn't say, go back. Why? Why? Following Jesus 
is like no one you have ever followed before. He's not like following some other prophet. He's not like following some other Christian. He's not like following your boss at work. Following Jesus is something completely different. And it is immediate. So right now, if Jesus is calling you to follow Him, why would you wait? Why would you hesitate? The kingdom of God is waiting for you. It's here, it's now, it's immediate. So check this out as we close up. What happens? Jesus replied, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. And this, my friends, is a beautiful, beautiful image. So, in Jesus' response, He talks about a plow. And I've brought a plow here. It's not mine. I found it on Craigslist. 20 bucks. Pretty good deal. And the deal is, this plow is like cool, but it's a little bit different. You see, the ancient plow, like the one that Jesus would be talking about, it would only have one handle, and it would be somewhere near the center. So I'm going to try to, to see if I can balance this here as I, as I talk to you. So he's got, the farmer is going, okay, and he's plowing the ground. And he's got the plow in one hand, and he's trying to keep the plow straight. And in the other hand, what he has is it's called a goad. Now, has anybody ever heard the word goad before? All right, not too many of us. Now, what goad is, is it would be the stick... Oh my goodness, are you okay? It would be the stick that he would be using that would have a sharp point on one end and he would use it to prod on the oxen as he would move. Now, if you can imagine this, this plow has two handles. Can you imagine trying to push a plow that only had one handle and then using the other one to hit the oxen in keeping it straight. Keeping the share is what they called trying to keep the plow straight. So you're trying to keep the share, you're hitting the oxen, and you are plowing soil. So it's not like you're trying to push this thing through water here. You are on very, very hard soil. And the image that Jesus is trying to give us is this. You cannot keep your furrow the, the, the line that you would plow straight if you look back. Why? Because if you look back for just a second, the plow will go off course. If your furrow goes off course just a little bit, a little bit when you look back, you'll screw up your furrow. Your line will be out of whack. What happens when your line is out of whack? Every other line is going to get messed up too. You have to keep the plow straight. And so, what people would do, what farmers would do in this time, they were smart. They would take, what I have here is a bunch of dirt and I have a stick. They would get a stick 
and they would take it and they would put it into the soil at the end of the furrow that they were trying to make and they would come back to their... Whoa, that would have been bad. <laughs> and they come back to their plow and as they are plowing, they're, they're here holding the plow, they're using the goad to hit the oxen and they are trying to keep this plow straight. And the way that they do it is they only look at the stick that is right ahead of them. And if for a moment they take their focus off of that stick, they will make a crooked line. Jesus is saying this, if you will be My disciple, then you will keep your face towards Me. You'll keep your face towards Me. In the series of life, in the journey that we are on, each of us are going to have that moment where we're in grade school. And then we graduate, and we graduate junior high, and then we play on that high school football team. And then we have the opportunity to go to college. And then after college, we graduate, and we meet that special someone, and we get married. And then after we get married, we find our job. And then after we find our job, we save up this money, and we buy a house. And after we have the house, we get that promotion that we always wanted. And so then we feel like it's time that we can have kids. So we start to have children. And then after we have children... We buy a bigger house, and after we have the bigger house, we have to get a minivan, which is not fun. And then after you get the minivan, you maybe have grandchildren, and then you lose your spouse to cancer, and then one day you die. That is the furrow of our life from beginning to end. And for each of us, it will look different. Many of you right now, as you are on your journey with your plow, you're like the first man who gets caught up in comfort. And so all of a sudden, you see that new car that you've been wanting, and you start heading in that direction, and all of a sudden it becomes your focus. You see that house that you've always wanted, and that house becomes your focus. And all of a sudden, your furrow is just getting completely jacked up because you're focusing on the wrong things. You're not keeping your face towards Christ. Others of you keep putting it off because you've got business to finish up. You say, you know what? I can't commit to a church right now because I'm going to college and I only have a job that's paying minimum wage. And so for me to tithe, that would be absolutely impossible. And so you're allowing these other businesses of your life to take your focus instead of saying, Jesus, I am ready to commit to following You completely and solely. I put my face towards You and I will go in Your direction. Straight up, others of us right now, like there's just relational junk that is keeping our eyes off of the prize. We've got that person in our life that we have been pursuing. We've got that parent that is a different faith. They're Catholic and they are telling you, you know what? I don't like this whole Jesus thing of this church, Matthias's lot that you've been going to, and I want you to stop. And so all of a sudden, like your, your plow kind of changes direction because you start to listen to that wisdom instead of keeping your eyes on Christ. When are you going 
to completely become a disciple of Christ and realize that the furrow of your life is all about the glorification of God all the time. You might get married. You might go to college. You might get a job. All those things are good. But they have to happen with your eyes on the prize. Let's pray. Father, we love You, God. We praise You for tonight. God, we ask that You would help us to keep our faces towards You. Father, I confess right now, just in my own life, that there have been so many times where I have turned my plow towards a new thing. I have turned my plow towards a relationship. I have turned my plow towards trying to finish up business before I completely committed to following You wholeheartedly. God, I ask right now that Matthias Lot would be a body that is ready to lay down all of the junk that's holding us up and we will put our stick in the ground, Your cross, and we will set our faces resolutely towards You and we will follow You with all of our heart and all of our life and You will be the greatest thing that we have to strive for. God, I pray that You would make our harvest plentiful. God, I pray that our children would rise up and because of the furrow that we have set, that they would call us blessed and they would worship You. We love You, God. In Jesus' name, Amen.